A change is as good as a holiday. Have you ever heard that saying? Have you ever been stuck in a rut and thought, wow, if only my circumstances would change, if only things would get better? I'm sure there are many of you out there during this crisis that have been thinking, gee, I wish things would just change. I wish I could just get out. I wish things were back to normal. But then I'd ask you the question, what is normal? Why is changing back to normal going to make your life better? Why is doing one things or things one way more normal than doing things another way? When we get frustrated frustrated with aspects of our life, we can think, wow, a change will be good. If only things could be different, this would be wonderful. I travelled overseas when I was younger because I believed a change would be good. I believed it would make my life better. But that's not always the case. Sometimes a change can be bad. Especially when we're on a holiday. We can find that we're in the situation, that we enjoy the situation so much that we don't want things to change. That a change will be bad. We might be in a job we really enjoy, a relationship that we think is wonderful. We could be with a group of friends or just out for a night. And the last thing we want is things to change. Changes can be good. Changes can be bad. Sometimes changes can be great and we don't want change. Just personally, I've been through a great many changes. I've changed job. I've just changed house. I've just changed my daily routine. And I've got to be honest, I'm sick to death of change. Change is a part of living in this world. Change happens around us all the time. And today as we look at Ecclesiastes 3, as we look at the passage before us, we see that change, just like everything else that Solomon has looked at, is meaningless. Yes, there can be good changes. Yes, changes can be bad. But at the end of the day, change is meaningless. Over the previous weeks, Solomon has looked at the world and he's concluded, as Ecclesiastes has explored various areas of life, that, verse 2, chapter 1, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. And today, as we look at this passage, we'll see and watch as he considers change. First, he looked at the world and looked at work and said, well, it's meaningless, it's futile. You can work your guts out for the world, but no matter how hard you work, you won't create lasting meaning. You won't create lasting purpose. Just last week, Joe looked at money and his conclusion Money can buy you lots of things in the world, but it won't buy you meaning. 
And this week Solomon looks at change itself. And surprise, surprise, he finds its monotonous futility and chasing after the wind. And so he opens the passage and he begins the chapter with this well-known poem. And according to Joe's original sermon, which I'm not reading, I've written my own sermon because I thought it was a time for a change. This poem was turned into a song and it's a song that's been covered more than 28 times I've heard. It's been covered by people like Dolly Parton, the boss Bruce Springsteen. If you're over over 40, you know who I'm talking about. If you're under 40, you're going, who are they? And this poem reflects the change, the way the world is cycling through different activities. And it very cleverly points to how the world is working. There's a rhyme and a rhythm to the poem. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to sow. There's a time to uproot. And you might be thinking at this point, why do I keep talking about change? It's talking about time. But that's what the passage is about, because what time measures is change. Time tells us when change is happening. There is a time to be born, a change. There is a time to die, a change. There is a time to sow, change. There is a time to uproot, change. If you read the commentaries, some people will think, wow, this poem, it paints such a positive view of life, that things are appropriate in their time, that there's a time and a place for every activity under the sun, that this poem is life-affirming. Get out there, live it, find the meaning, find the purpose, find the right time to do things. But other commentators will say, wow, this poem, it's really down and negative. Look at it, there's a time, a time, a time. Time grinds you into the dirt. Change is monotonous, it's unrelenting. It does not stop. It gives you not a moment to breathe. But as I looked at the poem, and as I thought about it, I don't think the poem is either negative or positive. I think what Solomon is saying here, and what Solomon is cleverly weaving into the poem, is just a statement about reality. And he comes to this conclusion. Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's how the NIV has rendered it. The changed, new and approved CSB version puts it like this. Absolute futility. Everything is absolutely futile. But it raises the question. If that is true... If everything is meaningless, if everything is futile, then why are you telling me? Why are you saying anything at all? If everything is meaningless or futile, then so are not of your words? 
The statement appears to be a contradiction from the get-go, but that's not Solomon's point. The poem itself captures the very dilemma Solomon has. Everything in the world appears to have a meaning and a purpose. Everything seems to fit into a right place and a right time. The fact that there are appropriate times and seasons for change appears to give the world meaning and purpose. But when you sit down and you think about it, when you truly look under the hood of life, something that on first appearance looks obvious, something that looks as plain as the nose on my face, that the world should have meaning and purpose, that there is a reason, that there is a rhyme to everything that happens in the world. When you look deep, deep, deep down, you find it isn't there. It's like reaching out and grasping for air. You capture nothing. It's a chasing after the wind. That's the paradox of the book. It looks like it should have meaning and purpose. Why doesn't it have meaning and purpose? When I look at it, it should be there, but it isn't. And so, verse 9, What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Change distracts us from the truth. That each change we see in the world appears to be laden and filled with meaning. It hides us from the reality that it isn't there. It isn't to say we don't come up with our own reasons and meaning for purpose. People do. What Solomon is pointing at, that below it all, that when you strip back the world and all the changes and all the reasons, at its very heart, right down at the bottom of it, there is no ultimate or is no ultimate reason or meaning to be found at the bottom of it all. Sure, you can come up with your own meaning and purpose for life, but if you sit down and try and explain it, if you keep asking why, you'll eventually get the answer, because I felt like it, because I wanted it. In the I society in which we all live, we often mistake the new as the different, as change, as giving meaning and purpose. We think, oh, something new, meaning and purpose must be here. Yet our whole society and most of the stuff it now builds will only last two years, tops. Why two years in Australia? Oh, because consumer law says things have a two-year warranty and if they break, I'm going to have to pay more money. And so we go and buy the new, thinking, oh, new meaning, new purpose, great, fantastic. 
and we feel the thrill of the moment. We enjoy the unboxing. We enjoy the smell of the new car. This is great. It doesn't last. I'm fascinated in our society. You look on YouTube, you see all these channels that are dedicated to unboxing. And I used to watch them for a little while and I used to think, why am I watching you unbox new stuff? Why are you doing it? And these channels have a lot of followers, a lot of interest. And then I think I understood why. And it was sort of brought out in a little situation that happened with our dog and Trudy. Trudy was sitting in the kitchen this week and she was just doing some stuff and she saw the dog and the dog's running around the floor. She goes, What's the dog doing? And then she noticed that the dog was following a little light. And she was wondering, where does that light come from? And then she realised what was happening was there was light coming into the room and it was bouncing off her watch and bouncing onto the floor. And the dog had seen the light being moved around the floor and the dog was chasing the light around the floor going, oh, wow, this is exciting, this is different. And as Trudy was telling me this story, and as I was thinking through this sermon, I went, ah, that's what change is like. We're just like my dog Nova. We see a new change. Oh, that looks interesting. Oh, that's exciting. Oh, that could be different. That could give meaning. That could be good purpose. It's like the movie. Squirrel! But as we keep chasing the new, as we keep thinking that change might bring meaning or purpose. The paradox of the book, the paradox of Ecclesiastes, keeps coming to the surface. There is no meaning. There is no ultimate purpose. It's a chasing after the wind. The changes which so easily distract, which so many in our society... They believe that this will give meaning. They don't. They fail. And so we move on to the next change. We get distracted by the next watch, the next iPhone, the next car, the next renovation, the next holiday. And so verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them to enjoy life, enjoy the good life. What is Solomon saying? Once you realise that there's distraction after distraction in change, there's nothing better than find some contentment where you are. That's what he means by the good life. He means those things in life which we think will bring us pleasure, enjoyment a moment of happiness, no matter how fleeting that might be. The good life is not talking about the moral life. The world describes the good things in life we enjoy. And he says, the best you can hope for, the best you can get out of this world is to be content in the moment. Basically, stop looking for meaning in the world Stop looking for meaning in what you do. Enjoy the moment. 
enjoy the sensations of the moment because that's the best you can hope for. This is not Solomon being positive about the good things of life. This is resignation. It's capitulation to the meanness of life. And if you listen to people in Australia, if you listen to the vast number of the way Australians talk about their lives, this is the way they live. You do you, as long as it makes you happy. There's no meaning or purpose to it all, no ultimate meaning or purpose. Be happy, be content. I remember when I first went into ministry, I ran into an old school friend of mine and he said to me, what are you doing? And, you know, being a minister, I said, oh, I'm a minister. I, I go and teach people about Jesus. And his comment to me at the time, which I have never forgotten, was simply this. Oh, as long as it makes you happy. And I stood there as he said that. I never replied because I didn't know how to reply at the time. But I stood there and my first thought was, what's happiness got to do with it? Who cares if it makes me happy? What matters is, is, it, is, is it true or not? But that was his first thought. And as you live and watch Australians... That's what they're all thinking. As long as it makes you happy, as long as you're content, that's the best. That's all you can hope for. Which leads to the question, what if you're unhappy? What if you're not content? What if what's happening in your life just makes you feel miserable? Oh, I know, a change. I should get the happiness because that's what I deserve. I should change things. I should get justice so that I can be happy because that is the point of life. Verse 16. I also observed under the sun. There is wickedness at the place of judgment and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam, and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. Solomon went looking for justice. Things weren't right, I will change. And when he went looking for justice, when he went looking for what should be right, he found evil at the place where the judges sit. At the place where he expected to find judges, justice, he found wickedness and unrighteousness. And when you look at the world, that is what you'll find in many cases. It's been interesting during the COVID-19 pandemic, thinking about and watching how our leaders have responded. And as things start to ease up, as the restrictions start to ease up, what has been more fascinating is how some leaders have worked even harder to keep the restrictions in place. One of the stories I heard from America was a 70-year-old barber. 
he was struggling financially and he never really closed his barber shop. He'd always worked his life. But now the government said, you should not do hairdressing. You should close your barber shop. And he said, I can't afford to. I need to get out to work. And so he went to work and the government said, no, and tried to close him down. Then the judges stepped in and said, no, he has a right to make that responsibility. He has that right to make that choice. So what did the governor do? She called up the Hairdressers Association in America and they removed his licence so that he can't cut hair. That's wickedness. You might think, wow, he shouldn't do that. Why? Isn't he a responsible adult? He's 70 years of age. He knows the risks. He knows what's involved. He's capable of making adult decisions. Why should a government restrictions, who doesn't know his situation, doesn't know where he lives, who can't assess the risk, tell him what to do? There was another lady. She had a beauty salon and she couldn't afford to put food on her table for children. And so she opened up, took heaps of precautions and they dragged her before the court and said, you're selfish. How dare you want to feed your children? You must apologise, not to society, but to the judge. Why do people think they can step in and tell other people how to live. Why is it selfish and evil to want to feed your kids? I don't know the complete situations. And none of us ever will. Often we can think we are promoting justice. We're promoting righteousness. I don't know if you've heard about social justice warriors, people who want to wrong the rights of history. And there's a sense where, yes, we want to see justice in the world. We want to see what is right. But often those who are enacting it just enact more wickedness, more grievances, more evil. What's the next generation going to do the same? If you do evangelism and you talk to an atheist, you'll eventually get this question. If God is good, why does evil exist? And I was listening to a prominent Christian apologist and as he was talking about this question, he was saying this is the toughest question, toughest objection that Christians have to deal with. And I would agree with him. Now, there's a relatively easy and logically consistent answer to the question. If God doesn't exist, then evil doesn't exist, and your question doesn't make sense. But that's a fob-off. That sort of pushes the question aside. Evil does exist, and there is a God. 
So if God is good, why does evil exist? And a truly honest person will look at this question and acknowledge it. Yes, this is a real question. Because none of us want to experience evil. Evil is horrible. The vast majority of people who ask this question, not asking and seeking to be, to, well, they're not seeking to ask this question because they're being difficult. For the vast majority, this is a genuine question. And Christians have to deal with it genuinely. One of the reasons why we should deal with it genuinely, genuinely, is because that's Solomon's struggle here. Sure, we can dismiss the question through clever rhetoric. And to a sense, that clever rhetoric is correct. But the truth is we can't dismiss the question because evil does exist. And Solomon has a quick answer himself. He says, God does this so that he can show his justice, so that man will see that he is just like the animals. But if you think about his answer, and as he goes on to say, you realise that that isn't an answer at all. That if we look and at evil and the death resulting from it all, then we will find that there is no answer. It's just meaningless. That there's just another change. Pointless. That if we look at the world, that we will see that we are no different to the animals around us. That we die just like they do. And there's a famous atheist thinker who says this. His name is Peter Singer. I'm going to write, write what he, I'll read what he says. If possessing a higher de- degree of intelligence does not entitle one human to use another for his or own ends, how can it entitle humans to exploit non-humans? His point, humans are the same as animals. To treat one different to the other is simply a basis of perceived intellectual speciesism. You shouldn't treat one animal different to the other. They're all the same. Now, we might want to scoff at Peter Singer and say, how dare he say we are just like the animals? How dare he say we are no different to them? But he's arrived at the very same conclusion as Solomon. Solomon's looked at the world and concluded, we have no advantage over the animals. We suffer their same fate. We struggle with the very same issue. And Peter Singer is no friend of Christianity. He brooks no opposition to his plan for animal liberation. He writes this, Christianity is our foe. If animal rights is to succeed, we must destroy the Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Peter Singer wants to destroy what we believe. It is defective thinking in his mind and it stops him from achieving his goals of animal liberation. And he's willing to come to Australia 
and ask people to pay $160 to hear about animal liberation, to encourage people on board. And you think, oh, well, this sounds pretty harmless. This sounds all right. This is where Peter Singer's thinking goes. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of happy life for the second. Therefore, if killing the haemophiliac infant has no adverse effect on others, it would, according to the total view, be right to kill him. If one infant's life subtracts from the happiness of another infant, remove it. Kill it. That's where his thinking leads. If we're all the same, if you get in way of achieving a greater good for one particular population over another, including the animals, then you deserve to die. This man is one of the leading ethicists in our culture. He's teaching ethics at Princeton in the United States. And people will pay thousands of dollars to hear him speak. As I said, he'll be here next year in Australia. And you can pay $160 to go hear him speak. But here's the truth of Peter Singer. He's not serious. Not that he's, what he's saying isn't important. It's just that he doesn't believe it. For when the rubber hit the road personally for him, he didn't put his ethic into effect. When his mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he paid to take care of her. He spent his hard-earned resources, not on the happiness of people who could better use their resources for themselves, but he spent them on caring for his mother. When push came to shove, and he had the chance to show everybody the superiority of his morality, the effectiveness of his ethics, in the face of caring for his old mother, he went to water. And I don't say that to have a shot at him. Because when push comes to shove, what he did wasn't necessarily a bad thing. The truth is, he's acting out the paradox that Solomon has been pointing at throughout this passage. There is no meaning, there is no purpose in the world except that which we give it. But everything in the world everything, the way the world operates, it screams it should have meaning and purpose. But when I try and find it, I don't. And when I try and live like I like it has no meaning, 
I can't. And so I'm caught in this futile revolution of change. It looks, it feels, it appears in every single way that it should matter, that what I does, what I do matters in its time. But when I think about it, when I sit down and really think about why I'm doing when I, what I'm doing, I find this. It's futile. Absolutely futile. A chasing after the wind. And then we come to the biggest mocker of all. The biggest destroyer of meaning in all of life. Death itself. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust all and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of animals the spirit of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. If changing matter is all there is, then nothing matters. It is the one inescapable conclusion of Solomon as he's looked at the world. Death destroys meaning. We can struggle, we can strain, we can enjoy the moment. It's irrelevant because death is coming for us all. And as we look at death, as we look at the world, as we use science, as we use empiricism, as we see people die, what do we find happens after they die? Do their spirits go up into heaven? Do their spirits go down? Do animals go to heaven? Answer, we don't know. No idea. I've seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? This is resignation. This is hopelessness. This is a man who has seen much change in the world and has given up for looking for meaning and purpose in it. This is Australian society. Gee, I hope I can find some happiness. I hope I can find some contentment. Death mocks us all. That's Solomon's point. Change is futile, a chasing after the wind. Life, death, meh. Who cares? We all turn to dust and it doesn't matter. If death reigns in the world, then it all doesn't matter. In 2013, one of my favourite commentators, brother to the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, 
So this man's name is Peter Hitchens, and he's Christopher Hitchens' brother, and he was on Q&A. And it was the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, and the panel of which Peter Hitchens was a guest was asked this question. What is the most dangerous idea in the world? And the panel went through and they gave their various answers. And Peter Hitchens said this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And of all the answers, that seemed to be the least offensive and the least dangerous. They were all a bit taken aback. And they said, why is that a dangerous idea? And Peter Hitchens responded and he said, because if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything you do matters. Everything you do has meaning. Death doesn't reign. There is a God. There is a judge. You might look at the world for meaning and purpose. You might look at the world and think there is a time and a season, but it won't won't be found there. The meaning and purpose for the world is found because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It tells us that God gives meaning and purpose and that God will judge the world for the meaning and purpose we give it. We read in Acts 17 in Paul's statement to the Athenians, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar to which you, which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives every everyone life, breath and all things. For one man he made every nationality to live under the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Can meaning and purpose be found in the world? No. Meaning and purpose is found in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is calling us 
to place our trust in him. As we look in the world and we will not find the meaning and purpose, his resurrection is screaming to us, the world is about me. Come to me. Trust me. I will give meaning. I will give purpose. That is the good news. If you are listening to this today, if you are searching for meaning and purpose in the world, know that you will not find it there. But the good news is that God has raised his son from the grave and has invested all meaning and purpose in him. And he longs for you to know him through his son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came into this world. He did not leave us in our plight. He did not allow death to reign over us. We ask as your people this day, Father, that you will change our hearts and our minds, that we will trust in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and know that the true meaning and the true purpose for all the world and for every single human being on earth is found in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and in his glory. Amen.